Welcome to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendrick's Past. This podcast features familiar voices reminiscing about some of the memories and experiences that they associate with their time at Hendrick's College. Big and small pieces of life that help make Hendrick's Hendrick's. Season one features one retired faculty member per episode. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Alice Hines, C. Lewis and Charlotte Cabe Distinguished Professor Emerita of English who retired in 2017 after more than three decades of service to the college. This interview was recorded April 8, 2021, with hosts Amy Meredith Forbes, Hendricks Class of 1996, and Julie Christian Janos, Hendricks Class of 1994. All participants were fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Welcome to If These Bricks Could Talk, Tales of Hendricks Past. We're here today with the C. Lewis and Charlotte Cabe Distinguished Professor Emerita, Dr. Alice Hines, here to share some of her memories of her more than 30 years at Hendricks. Hi. Hi, Dr. Hines. How are you? Who knows? <laughs> I, I don't do recordings and telecast and that kind of thing. So all of this is quite strange to me. Well, thank you for but being a good that, sport. I'm okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Well, you're welcome. We really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. Well, I'm glad to be here. I think I'll be glad after I hear what I said <laughs> and what you asked me. But sure, it's good to be here. Well, um, we'll dive right in then. We have just a few questions uh, okay. to encourage some reminiscing. <laughs> so um, how did you begin your time on the faculty at Hendricks? Okay, now I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but I, I'll tell you what I think, and then you can redirect me. I was teaching in the first Arkansas Governor's School, and I met Dr. Ken Story, and we taught in the uh, English language arts part of Governor's School. And so at any rate, uh, he was talking to me, and we chatted, and he said, you know, you should think about coming to Hendrix. And I laughed uh, because I knew that Hendricks had no black folk up here, <clears throat> and I thought, why would I go up there? And I never thought about it much. And later on, I guess it was a year or so later, maybe, there was a vacancy, and I didn't know anything about it, but Ken called me one night, and he said, we have an opening, and I want you to apply. And I, I just laughed. I thought it was real funny. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, oh, okay. I'm serious, too, and so that was kind of how we did it. But he followed up on it, and to shorten this, I actually came up to be interviewed, and I thought about it because I was already tenured where I was, and I thought, well, I don't have to go up there. But after all, I'm a native Arkansan, and I thought it would put me closer to my mother. My mother could not drive a car, and obviously there was no public transportation up here, and so I thought about it. I came up, and I interviewed. And it was a very interesting set of interviews. Uh, I think I stayed a day, and I met the outgoing president at that time. He was packing in his office, and he would look up and say something to me, and then he'd put a book in a box, and I'd answer. And we carried on like that for about 20 minutes, and he thanked me for coming, and I thanked him, and he continued to pack, and I went back home. And I didn't think about it very much. And I think a week or so later, Ken called me and he said, well, we want to invite you to come up. And I had to do another series of interviews, I think. And I did. 
And we sort of laughed and went through that. And I never, frankly, thought I would be taking the job. I don't know why I didn't think that. I just didn't. (laughs) And I think it was Ken who called me and said, we're going to hire you. And I laughed. I thought, I'm under contract. And it was moving to the summer. So we worked it out. And I came in September uh, of that year. So that's how I got here. I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's what happened to me. Well, um, sounds like a great start with a a long-term colleague. Yes, it was. He was wonderful. He was. And I had told him that I would stay as long as he stayed. Mm. Didn't it kind of worked out that way almost? Kind of, kind of. Would you tell me a little bit about the classes you taught over the years? Well, at that time, the department was quite small. I'm not really sure how many people there are right now. It's much larger. So we were all generalists. So I taught advanced composition. We had intermediate composition. We had freshman composition. So I taught that. I taught great books. I remember that was one of the first courses I taught because I had taught something almost like that in governor's school. It was a world literature class, so I taught great books. And then I remember when they put, quote-unquote, my position together, the person who had been teaching Introduction to Fine Arts had also, I think she'd retired. I don't remember. Her name was Helen. I, I never met her. And so they said, oh, and you'll teach that too. So I taught Intro to Fine Arts and the English courses and a great books course, a world literature course. And and then Ken was teaching 17th century, so he said, well, here, you can teach one of those, too. <laughs> and so we rotated, and that's how I ended up teaching those courses. And I had hmm. taught Intro to Fine Arts under various others, because I'd also taught world religions where I was and that sort of thing. So I was familiar with it, and I had taught it previously when I was working elsewhere. So it wasn't so much a stretch as it was we were on terms at that point. And so we had to figure out how often to, to offer a course and who was going to teach it. But the department was very, was very friendly, and we'd just get together and decide who was going to teach what. And that's what we'd offer and make sure that we had enough breadth to cover the courses we thought. And each year, we were concerned. I think Ken was chair at that point, And we were concerned about being sure that our majors had enough breath to be able to go on because many of them would be going on to graduate school. Others would be teaching in the public schools in Arkansas and in various states of this country. And so there was always that concern about preparing our majors, but also offering a a good curriculum to the rest of the students at the college. So it was easy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember taking some of those courses you mentioned from Mm -hmm. you and still use some of those things in my daily life and one in particular there's one moment that stands out to me it was probably the hardest course i ever took at hendrix 17th century british (laughs) literature that was one he handed off to me oh well i can i can thank ken story for that oh that was such a hard course and there was one day you asked a question and you called on me we were in mill c i believe and i stumbled my way through the answer as best as i knew how and you responded with, Miss Meredith is right. That made my week. 
It absolutely <laughs> made my week. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, those memories you have of students when when they excelled and when they got well, things. it's interesting to have you say something pleasant. Most of the time now, when I meet former students, they say, you gave me that C. <laughs> or you, you marked my paper because of these comma splices. And I often say, well, can't you remember anything pleasant that I did? And so it's very difficult. So I'm glad you remembered something pleasant that I did. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to answer that question. It's kind of funny to me. Uh, but I always thought, and still do think, because I said something like that in a meeting last night that we had up home, I think people need to be engaged in what they're doing and that you need to read. And we, we have this discussion in my Sunday school class, and, and I'm sure you remember from our classes, I figure you get a reading assignment, I expect you to read it. We don't come to class to read it. So when I call on you, you need to be able to respond to it. Because you have some input on it. It's your education, after all. And I'm just up here, up there, wherever I was. And so I always thought that students needed to talk about what they were reading. And I know you remember that I had you read the poetry out loud. I said, it's meant to be heard. You don't just pour over a line of poetry. You need to hear it. And if you hear it, then you have a better sense of how to read it so that you can get the flow of it. And so, sure, I called on people, and I remember students coming to my office, and one in particular, and she said, don't you call on me in class? And I said, why not? And she said, because I'm nervous. And I said, okay, I won't call on you. And, and I never knew if people were or were not, and I didn't, I just don't believe, I never did, in embarrassing students, making them feel bad about something. But I remember that well. I never called on her. And believe it or not, she ended up being a chaplain. And I told her, I said, well, how do you talk to people now that you couldn't read your lines in class? And she said, I just grew better. I thought, okay, (laughs) it works for me. Well, I would think Amy's experience is not unusual because uh, you are so important to so many of us who are English well, majors. And um, so how does that make you feel knowing just how important you were and your opinion was to your students? Well, it's good to hear, as I say, most of the time, and I won't call his name, but, but he's a doctor in Little Rock. And I remember going into the clinic and I wasn't going to see him, but I saw his name on the list. And I thought, I know him. I remember him from fine arts. And so he came around the corner. He said, yes, I remember you, too. You gave me a B. I said, I did not. You earned a B. There's a difference. <laughs> and so it does. I, I'm not really sure how to answer your question, Julie. I, I think that I didn't harm the students, but who knows? If, the, if those are the memories they have, I must have done some damage to somebody. <laughs> if all you can remember is that I gave you a C. And that's what one Burkhill tells me that all the time. He said, you gave me a C. And I'm going, no, I did not. You earned a C in that (laughs) class. That was what you got. So no, but (laughs) I don't know how to answer your question. I'm really, I guess, very pleased. And I can say this, Since since I retired, from Hendrix, and even during the last five years of, of my time here, my health was going down the tubes. I was on a rollator trying to get to class and back. And I remember I had said to uh, members of my extended family, I said, now, I'm staying there until 
it is my time to go. And so I'd roll eight into class and come out, and the students were tremendously helpful. And they've been helpful and very kind ever since. When I, when I meet them, I actually met one in the uh, Kroger about four weeks ago. And I didn't know that because with all these masks, you know, I don't know who anybody is. And I just said, a young lady, I said, you can get in front of me because I don't have very much. And she just turned around and she said, well, Dr. Hines, it's a girl. Who are you? And she smiled and she was very kind. So, no, I'm very happy to see Hendrix graduates whenever I see them and to know that they're doing well. Because I never thought that anybody would pay much attention to me. You didn't? You no. didn't think that? No, no, oh, we no. We all paid so much attention to you. No, I thought I'm just, I'm doing what I'm supposed <laughs> to do. I enjoy it and I'm getting the heck on out of here. And that's what I said to uh, uh, the young lady who asked me to make that Hendrix speech. And I said, why? Why would they ever want to hear anything I had to say? They had to listen to it for over 30 years. That's enough. You left us clamoring for more. You're very kind. Most definitely, yes. Did you have a favorite class that you enjoyed teaching? No, I really liked... And I know the students would probably go, oh, my God. But I love teaching composition. And, and I know Dr. Chaplin and I taught every semester, every term, and other people didn't. But I thought it was, it was the one class in which you could see immediate improvement. And I know the students complained about it, and some of you may have, but you didn't take comp with me. But my students had to write in class. And I said, you have to learn how to compose. And I remember the students would complain and say, my secretary is going to do my writing and my what? I said, but your name is going to be on it. And I ended up saying something similar to a person about three days ago I was helping. And I said, you have to remember, your writing goes in your place. I said, and I don't care if your secretary did it. You signed it, and that's who these people will know. They will know you who couldn't write a sentence, and you, who couldn't explain an idea. I said, so you've got to learn how to do it on your own. How do you know that your secretary has explained it very well? She may not have. And so I enjoyed it. But I liked all the other classes, too. I liked 17th century. <laughs> and interestingly enough, my area is supposed to be 18th century. <laughs> I said, nobody ever thought I actually knew anything about it, I guess, because I never got to teach much of it. <laughs> it was always when Ken handed off 17th century, that's what I had. So, And, of course, I, would, I, I knew something about it, but I, <laughs> my focus was 18th century British drama. <laughs> and I never taught a course in 18th century British drama, ever. I taught restoration literature, but never what I was supposed to know something about. And I, I, I knew something about composition, and I did like it. I still do. Because you can see your progress. You know, when, when you can organize a paragraph, you can go to the point. I said, people want to get to the point. They, they don't want you to go wandering around all day on something. And you stick to it and you stop. You don't feed, you know, just a bunch of gobbledygook in there. And the students, when we had the wit classes, I remember a student came to the writing center, and I think they were writing on the Odyssey. And so he, he, he'd answered a question about Telemachus. And then he had about five more paragraphs. And I said, well, what are you doing with this? He said, well, they said we had to have seven paragraphs. He said, so I wrote five more. 
<laughs> and I thought, no, you don't. You answer the question and stop. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the question. And I thought, who's telling somebody to just pad it to get, you know, seven or eight paragraphs? It's crazy. So in composition, see, you learn that when you have done what you set out to do, and that's what planning means. You plan a paper. And when you have completed it, you stop writing, please. Because <laughs> nobody's going to read that. <laughs> I know. Makes good sense to me. It's always a good reminder for those of us who still write in our yeah. daily work. And for people who read it. I mean, most people read the first paragraph. I know I look at articles and I read the newspaper every day. And I look at it, I read the first paragraph. It either gets my attention or it doesn't. And you got all that other just blah, 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 and a lot of it is repetitive. I mean, they repeat the same story every day. I thought, why don't you just give us the addition and forget what you told us yesterday? We read that. <laughs> that makes no sense. Is there something you did at Hendrix uh, beyond the classroom that gave you a lot of joy that you enjoyed? Well, sure. I came to work. I usually got here about 6 o'clock. In the morning, uh, for when I came, we had seven o'clock classes, and so I get here so we could have I could be prepared for class, and I stayed, and I usually left Hendrix about four thirty or five o'clock, and so what that meant was that I had time for office hours, and I know maybe some people think of those as you know kind of burdensome, and I'm not saying that I don't know any people who do it, think of it that way, but I, I imagine some do. But that, the office hours were always a pleasure to me because that's when I actually got to talk with the students, to work with the students, and to get to meet people as real people outside that, you know, 60-minute class period or a 50-minute class period. So those were the times that I enjoyed most. I particularly liked all of the, quote-unquote, support programs that we had. Hendrix had wonderful speakers. And it was always a pleasure to stay here so that I could go and to encourage my classes. And I remember I had colleagues across campus who said, well, why are you giving them points to go? And I said, because it's a way of encouraging, but also suggesting to them that these programs are worthwhile. They're part of what you paid your tuition for. You didn't just pay it to go sit in a classroom, but you needed all of these other programs to to round your experience. And so I enjoyed staying on campus so that I could meet the students, but also to stay. I mean, if we were going to have a speaker at seven, it made no sense for me to go home and have to come back. So I just stayed. And the students were always very, very kind. They came to their appointments and then they'd just drop in. And so I met many students because they'd just come by and say, okay, I'm working on my paper. They didn't have any particular reason to have to come to see me, but they'd come and we'd talk. And so we'd learn things. They would tell me things they knew. I didn't know I'd do anything. And I'd just sit out there, especially I remember with uh, Dean Merrill when we were getting computers and we were over in Fawcett 10 and had these computer classes. And Dr. Story and I were in there together, which was really terrible uh, because he didn't know anything about it. And I knew even less. And there we were trying to learn how to use the computer. And we sit looking at each other and they were going lickety-split like we could keep up because <laughs> Dean Merrill was a physicist. And they were going, blah, 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 blah. And we, we just look at each other. Oh, this is not for us. 
But we sit there and we try to practice and learn how to use the computer. And I'd say, oh, I wish I could just go back upstairs to my office. And I'd have to sit here and try to learn how to do something I know I can't do. But to, to, to make this make sense with what else I was saying, it's that the students would help me. And I would sit in my office, and obviously I still don't know what to do much. And I just holler, help! And whoever was sitting out there on the sofa would come in and help solve whatever problem I'd created on the computer. And so it was wonderful to have the office hours and to be able to stay on campus because it was a friendly campus. And it was a safe campus. So I felt good. And I knew, I always knew that if I needed some help, the students would help me. Because they knew, and I was always honest about things I didn't know how to do. And I obviously wasn't learning. I was just there. And Kia was learning even less than I was, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so we, we never quite mastered the art of the computer. <laughs> what kind of interaction did you have with students outside of the classroom, maybe like outside of the academic realm? Well, let's see. I was never one for the orientation trips when they started having those because, one, I was not going to drive a van <laughs> and I wasn't going to be responsible. I never, I never took a group of students to England. I said, I am not going to be responsible for these Hendrix students. I know how they are. You think I'm going to Europe with a bunch of them? Not on your life. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And I'm not going on these trips. So I did actually go on two orientation trips. It, <laughs> it was really a, a stretch because obviously they had to get someone to drive the van. Because I, I was not going to do that. We went to Memphis. And I had a good time with the students. I was there, but I wasn't about to be driving around a bunch of students <laughs> in a van, taking them someplace. And I went some, oh, we did a project here in Conway. And then, of course, I worked with the Black Student Organization, which was formed uh, after I came here. And they were very, very busy helping Hendrix come into the century that was about to leave uh, before they understood what true diversity was. And so SBC was formed then, and the students worked really hard at helping the campus to understand that you, need to, you needed to have, at that point, and I'm sure they still do now, you, need to ha you needed to have real multicultural education. And while Hendricks wasn't, I guess, blocking it, they also weren't doing anything to encourage it. And the formation of SBC actually contributed tremendously to that, even though when I came here, Cynthia Greer was already here in the Office of Student Development, and she was working hard, but it, was, it took a long time. And, and I think that by the time I left in 2017, I think the campus, I know, the campus had widened so that all the quote-unquote multicultural programs didn't have to be produced by the black students that you had other um, agencies on campus taking care of that, and that was important. But that's the sort of thing. So I, I did work with them and with other student organizations because, as I said, when I came to Hendricks, the campus was very small and things were done. Everybody contributed to making the campus work. And so oh, after I'd been here about, I guess, maybe three weeks, I think I was here three weeks, uh, the lady came over from the library and she said, well, uh, you are now the sponsor of the Troubadour. I said, how is that? 
And she said, well, I've been doing it, but now here, it's yours. I said, okay. <laughs> and I thought, where is the troubadour? Well, at that time, it was upstairs in, in the old Hewland house. I went up there and I looked around. There's a beat-up uh, typewriter and some other, what kind of yearbook formation is this? <laughs> and I thought, even Spelman was better off than this. This is ridiculous. So I, had, I inherited that. So I worked on that with the students, and they were they were excellent. I I they took care of it, but I sort of buffered for them with the uh, campus agency so that we could get. Because I remember I got a new typewriter, I just donated it. I thought you can't do anything with this, and see that was pre the computer uh, when I came, and so I worked with them, and they worked with themselves to get this yearbook produced. And then the next thing I know, I inherited the profile. I thought, what on earth is this? <laughs> I'm, I'm not responsible for all of this. And so one person reminded me, but you were on the yearbook committee when you were an undergraduate at your school. I said, yeah, but that doesn't qualify me to be directing some of this. And of course, Hendricks never had a journalism department. So uh, what I did was talk to... Uh, some people at the log cabin. And so I said, these students need to have classes in this. They need to understand how this is supposed to be done. And especially do they need to be concerned about legal rights. You just don't go take somebody's picture and slap it in the yearbook without their permission. And, you know, Hendrick's students are interesting students. And so when you could do your own senior picture, and I remember we got a senior picture, of five young men uh, in their birthday suits, and all they had covering their important person <laughs> was a hat. And they were <laughs> insisting that their picture go into the yearbook. And no, 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 no. <laughs> and they told me that I could not censor them. I said, I'm not censoring you. I'm just telling you it's not going to go in the yearbook. I said, and you may do as you please, but you can get sued for this. I said, do the other, because all five of them did not sign that. I said, do these other young men know you want to put this in there? Oh, no, ma'am. I said, see, it won't go in. You have to go find something else. <laughs> so it was an interesting soldier, and I thought, they'll take me off this for sure. When these students get through complaining about me, saying, so we wrote a picture policy. I said, you have to have policies. You can't go around doing this stuff. Uh, <laughs> it'll get you in trouble. I said, besides which. And it's interesting now because some of them are quite important people in Arkansas. I said, now see, you don't know where the yearbook is going to go. You don't know who's going to dig up something and say, see the kind of person he was when he was a student at that liberal college in Conway, Arkansas. So that's how it turned out. So yeah, I did, did what I could. I think they'll remember that worse. But we had a policy. <laughs> and we worked on it, and we tried uh, to adhere to journalistic rules and, and, and follow those for the publication. And again, you know, you always had the students who came to Hendrix with that in their background, so they knew what they were doing. So it wasn't as if I made a great contribution to the profile or the troubadour. I just tried to keep it out of trouble <laughs> and try to say, no, you can't do that. No, we can't spend money on this. No, we can't do that. But they knew the mechanisms of making it operate. So it was fun. And I did enjoy it. I look at some of those pictures, I think, no. And you know, they were fabulous. Hendrick's students are just ridiculous. 
They sit up there, they put all these crown royal bottles in front of themselves. I said, so you're a bunch of alcoholics, huh? <laughs> and that's, that's how you want to look in your campus yearbook. I mean, if you look at some of that, it's just ridiculous. You know, sitting up there having a, a drunk fest. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But yeah, that's, that was what I did for the yearbook. I thought, I'm saving you from something you don't know will happen or could happen. <laughs> And that's how they wanted to see themselves. Well, that was ridiculous. Thank you for having all the insight that, that we didn't. Well, it's just because I was a little older and I was concerned. We didn't want to be sued, you know. And the ex was always, I was always on the media committee. I thought, heaven help us. And we'd always have somebody up there using profanity. And our little tin watts, I said, you know, you don't have many. You don't go have any at all. You keep this up. You can't just get up there and blah, 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 all, all this stuff. The, you know, there are rules for this. <laughs> the federal, it was just, it was very difficult to get a faculty person to be the sponsor of the X. Yeah. Just yeah. ridiculous because the students would get up there and they would just go berserk. And start saying, then immediately, I, I think they forgot. That I, I really believe that most of them thought they were just uh, reaching out to the Hendrix audience. But see, they're, they're Hendrix graduates in that audience in Conway, in that, in that range. And they would call in, and they would say, what are you letting them do? I'm going, oh, we're not letting them do anything. They're just doing it. <laughs> and we're trying to control it as best we can. Did you listen to KHDX? Did you Once listen or to twice, their shows? And I understood why they were complaining. I thought, never again. <laughs> mm -mm. No, no, no. So what was most challenging to you about teaching at Hendrix? I'm not really sure. Challenging, let's see. Mm-hmm. I guess more than anything, it was watching the evolution of the faculty. When I came to Hendrix, a student could pass composition with a grade of D. And I thought that made no sense whatsoever. And so I, I remember I found it in some of the paperwork that I took away when I was packing up boxes, getting out of my office. I wrote a long letter explaining to them that even at black schools where I graduated, you had to have a C. I said, and if you think this education is as good as you say it is, these students ought to pass composition with a C. So it took a little negotiating, I guess I'll call it, with faculty, because I remember I had to go by office by office and chat, not from the English department side, because they agreed, but with the larger faculty and say, do you understand what we're trying to do here? We're trying to upgrade it. And so I think for challenges, because this was, you know, I came to Hendricks, there were seven women. It's a male-dominated faculty. I could sit in, in the faculty meetings and look around. I thought, oh, my God. And see, I went to a woman's college, and so I was used to women having something to say and being heard. And they would hear you. They just didn't listen. So you had to negotiate. You had to go around. And I don't think they thought you did, but I knew 
that to get them to vote to pass something like going from a D to a C, which I thought should be easy, required that I had to try to get these votes so that they would pass it in the faculty meeting. So that was always something interesting. And you knew if, if you were trying to move Hendricks, as I said earlier, from a, a mindset that was frozen, I don't know in what decade, to another mindset, it took a lot of work in, in the faculty. And so that was always the challenge to get out there. And it wasn't because I was sponsoring something. I mean, I sponsored that. And I remember arguing to move class sizes and composition. I said, you don't understand what teaching composition is really about. You can't have 20 students in a composition class. You just can't do that. You don't have time to, to do the reading. You don't have time for them to share their papers. You don't have time to grade them effectively. So we need to move the size. We need to move down to 15. And so eventually the campus accepted that, and then we went to 12 so that you could have effective interaction. So that was part of it, was getting these men, and I know you, you said that other faculty will be listening to this, it'll be interesting, <laughs> uh, but getting them to understand because, see, when I came here, there were no women in biology, there were no women in physics, there were no women in chemistry, and there was one woman in the business department, Professor Raymond. Now, what, what do you do with a school like that? Where are the young ladies to find their role models? You know, women want to be doctors, physicists, chemists, and we didn't have any. And I have to say that once we ha started having conversations just, just over lunch, and that was one of the good things, we were all pretty much eating in Hewlin. And so you could go sit with your colleagues across campus and you could start talking about that fact. Well, you know, where are the female chemists? Where are the female biologists? What are you going to do? And I remember one, one scientist said to me, it's a very difficult and competitive field. I said, so are the others. And we are there too. So there are women out there. And so we had to get the women who were here, the seven women plus Professor Richardson, who was here. Uh, she was, I think at that time, she was an adjunct for us. And then she became more full time. We had to get them to kind of work on these gentlemen to get them to see that you needed to broaden your area. And I, th I think, honestly, for a lot of them, they just hadn't thought about it very much because the department looked like them and there was no reason for it to look any other way. And so we gradually started getting women. And, and I think it made a difference. I don't think it made a difference because I did something about it, but I think it made a difference because people can't do what they're not made aware to do. And I think that required those of us who were here, because after all, they accepted me and they didn't have any other black folk. Uh, around and I thought, well, if you can accept me, you surely can accept other women to bring them into the faculty so that the students would have role models and people they could go to. Because I, I realized that the classes were competitive, the students were competitive, you know, because Hendricks had, and I think still does have, I hope it does anyway, a record for producing excellent doctors who, who could get into to med school through the MCAT and so forth. 
Well, don't you think you ought to do that for, for females who come here? They shouldn't come here. And at the end of the freshman year, decide, well, I have to major in something else. Why? You want to be a doctor? Why can't you? And why can't we help you? And so I, I at least I lived to see that evolution, and I thought it was a good thing. And, I, and I'm sure if you talk to some of the young ladies who didn't choose the med school route, they might be able to tell you why. And I think it was because we didn't do what we should have done soon enough. But Hendricks did do it eventually, and I think that was always a good move to make. And the departments and the campus was better because of it. And that was a challenge. And, and, and also getting used to bringing in more than two black students. That was a major challenge. I thought, good heavens, the rest of the world has gone away and you're still sitting here bringing in two and three and what have you. So they have no community either. Mm -hmm. And then you, you want to ask, well, why do they all sit together in the cafeteria? So you don't say that about the baseball team. You don't say that about the basketball team. What's the difference? You, you gravitate, because I did. When we would go, as, as English department people, when we would go to meetings in the state, there would be other groups. Well, where would I go? I'd go with the people I came with. No. So you don't, you don't do that. You don't single them out and decide that is a problem because they're all together. So it took a little while for us to, to understand, I guess, the, the mechanics of human interaction. Yeah. Did, so did you have a big leadership role in that? I mean, do you think you were one of the first ones to really push on that issue? Well, I talked all the time. I remember... <laughs> Professor Don Marr used to say, you just never let up. I said, nope, I don't. <laughs> I said, I told them when I came here that I, my issues were two. They were women and black folk. I said, it didn't change at all. I taught everybody. I said, but it didn't change what my points of interest is. Right? I said, I didn't come to radicalize Hendricks. I just came to keep the values I had that were mine in the first place. And so, sure, I argued for it every chance I got. I kept telling the faculty, I said, I get so sick of you saying, well, we couldn't find any qualified black candidates. I said, why are you using that adjective all the time? Why can't you just say you couldn't find any black candidates? Why do you have to make them qualified? I said, you never say that when you talk about anybody else. And that was, that was not a comfortable moment in the faculty. But sure. You know, if you if you believe in something, then why not state it? And so I never had any trouble telling folks what I believed in, and I never had any trouble telling folks what I thought they weren't doing. And they listened, and and they did. They really listened, and I could could name faculty people who did and who actually worked for it. Many many of them did. And the rest of them just kind of went along. I don't know that they were against it. I think they frankly hadn't thought about what it, what it meant. Because I think those of you uh, who are sitting out here recording this today, uh, from your Hendrix days, Hendrix operated on departments. And people were very departmentally oriented. And so you focused on your department and not so much on the larger Hendrix. And so it wasn't as if, People were blocking. It's just they didn't think about it. It was, how is my department working? And it's working just fine. 
though we don't have to go find any women, and we sure as heck don't have to go find any black folk. And I thought, isn't that interesting that I could stay here for almost 12 years by myself? Uh, when Hendricks thought, we got one, that's enough. And probably more than we should have. <laughs> I am sure <laughs> that many times they went home and said, oh, God, where'd they find her? <laughs> and, and I would just laugh about it and think, yeah, you found me, though. And well, I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and that reminds me of something that Dr. Chapel said. Uh, Chuck oh. Chapel said when we were celebrating your retirement was uh-huh. that that a guiding dictum of the department became, let's just not disappoint Alice because you held everyone to a higher standard. <laughs> well, that was very kind of him. And he was a wonderful colleague. They were good. I mean, they accepted me. Can you imagine? You know, you have you have to be the department to take this first black person. Mm. And you can imagine how some departments here would have said, not us. And I know they would have, because I knew my colleagues once I got here. They would have said, no, we're not taking the first one. And they took me. And they were genuinely supported. And we were all better for it. I think so. I honestly do. In spite of the students telling me that all I ever did was mark the comma splices or whatever. (laughs) But I think they were better for getting us to come and to get Dr. Jennings to come here. You got, you you know, if you say you believe something, because I remember saying this, and I remember telling them that I was no longer going to go on student recruitment trips because I said, you're not doing what you say you believe. I said, I'm out here saying, oh, Hendricks is a wonderful place for the students. Bring your students here, da-da-da-da-da. I said, and we look up and we get two. I said, that's not recruiting, and I'm not going out there anymore telling people that. I said, because we're not doing it. We just aren't. And so I stopped going. I stopped participating in the, the uh, recruitment trips because I didn't think Hendricks was living up to what it said. And I remember, and I think it's very important, when Dr. Ann Dye became president, she was responsible for bringing in Dr. Um, I keep saying Dr. Dion Bennett, because she was a Bennett when she was a student here, Jackson, and Dr. Carmen Harton because she listened to the argument, and, and, I, and I did remember making this argument. I made it several times to, to her, and I also made it to Dean Churchill, and I made it eventually uh, to Dr., uh, our next uh, president, Dr. Cloyd, after, after her. And I said, you know, if you look around, and you can check this by just looking at Hendricks' catalogs from the past, I said, Hendricks is very heavily inbred. They hire their graduates. I said, but you graduate black students too. And they have accomplished quite a lot. So why is it you haven't hired not one, not one black student who graduated from this college and has gone on? And Dr. Dye was concerned about that because we had plenty by that time. And I said, they're out there. I could give you a list. But they're not, they're not here. And yet you can continue to hire Hendricks graduates. And so she did, and she was responsible for bringing those two people onto this campus. Because I said, you've got some out there. Why don't you bring them here? 
And the same thing was true with Dr. Cloyd. I said, look at your board of trustees. I said, where are the black people? And he was genuinely concerned about it. And then he went out there. I, I said, I have a list. I always had a list, you know, uh, because I knew who the students were. Even, even the ones who never were actually active in SBC, I still knew who they were. And I knew what they had accomplished. And I said, you can put some black people on that board because the board needs to hear what it's really like to be at this college. I said, it's fine. The educational opportunities are fine. I said, but you don't live on campus for that only. You have to be part of the activity of the college. And that board of trustees needs to hear that. And so he went out and he got him some black board members. And I thank him for it. And I thank Dr. Dye for deciding that we could hire some black Hendricks graduates. You know, because if you don't, what are you saying? You're saying, yeah, they can go to school here, but no, no. They got the same education that everybody else got, and they made something of it. And so you need, if you're going to hire anybody, hire them too. It only makes sense, you know. Some things just make sense. And so I used to have nice little conversations out there about that little pun. You know, we get through marching and wearing all that stuff. I come, I said, let me tell you something. And we just kind of walk into Fawcett. And then with Dr. Clark, we get on the elevator, and I just ride up and down. <laughs> I used to laugh because I think I know he wants me to get off this darn elevator. And I just ride until I finish saying what I had to say. Then I get out from the second floor and go to my little spot and be quiet. But, you know, at some point, somebody has to say it. And there wasn't anybody else here to say it. So mm -hmm. you, you say what you, what you actually believe. But it was also better for Hendrix. Indeed. You've got to Definitely. have it. Mm -hmm. You have to let people see it. And I, and I used to say, and I remember Dr. Dr. Bruce uh, was certainly an advocate of this, Dr. Falls Covey, all the people on the committee. I said, you, you can't expect a campus to just sort of turn over overnight. I said, but it has to be holistic. It has to include everybody on the campus, from the, the campus maintenance people to the campus security people, we all have to become conscious of how important it is to recognize, and we weren't even using the word diversity then, but to recognize the fact that you've got other people on this campus and to treat them the same way you treat everybody else. You know, don't look up and every time you see a black male, you think, my God, he's getting ready to kill somebody. You have black men students on this campus. You need to know who they are and you need to treat them the way you would treat other people. Don't suspect them of something just because they happen to be black. And that, that has taken, I'm sure it's better now, but that took a long time to, to get us to become sensitive to, to the, I guess I'll have to use the word, to the inclusivity that was necessary for this campus. Because it just, it just wasn't there. I mean, when you just got a handful of people, and, and you're looking at them as if, my goodness, there must be something wrong. If anything happened, they had to do it. No, that is not the case. And it wasn't easy because there, there were times when very hateful stuff was written on the bathroom doors in, in, in Martin Hall and the bathroom doors and some of the other dorms. And we had to get that off, you know, that stuff. So it was, it was a job. And it was a job that the campus took on. And they actually worked at it. Mm -hmm. 
but it it was something that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. You've got to sensitize your community to the need for equity and justice, for character building, and for concern for all students. And as I tell them, I just taught students. I never had problems teaching them. They all heard the same message. I treated everybody the same. You're either going to write the sentence right or you're going to get an F on <laughs> until you get it right. Period. I don't care who you are. Well, uh, Dr. Hans, you always speak with such confidence and certitude. Have you always had that strength? No, I, probably not. But I spent four years at a woman's college in Atlanta, Georgia. And this was, you know, before the civil rights bill was passed and what have you. And they taught us in every class we had, you have a mind, use it. And it just didn't happen. At Spelman, you spoke up. You spoke up in your classes. You spoke up on campus. I mean, we even changed. <laughs> I remember when I, I became a member of the student government, we, we had to go to chapel every day at 8 o'clock, whether you wanted to go or not, and sing hymns and whatever. And I used to think, my Lord, this is deadly. This will kill you. You're getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning to sing, you know, Onward, Christian soldiers, jeez. And so we thought, I said, that, that shouldn't happen. I said, we, we shouldn't have to go. And so, you know, we talk in the dorm. And so we decided to boycott so that we could change chapel. This is very great. See, so, you know, I learned you, you could be an activist. Because I thought I didn't like going to chapel. You know, you, you rolling up because we couldn't wear pants to chapel at that time. So you just roll your pants up and put your, you know, your trench coat on and go on. And, you know, sign your little slip because they took roll at chapel and you could lose quality points if you cut too often. And I thought, oh, my God, Mm, it's sad. But we succeeded and they changed it. So we only had to go two days a week instead of three. See, you you can do things. And so it was there that I learned, you know, if you have an idea, I mean, you can survive in a Spelman class just sitting there like this. Everybody else would be do would be moving on, and you'd just be sitting there because they expected you to read the material, talk about the material, be able to write about the material, and hold your point. And if you think this is what a sonnet means, then you need to be able to convince your classmates that that you have a valid point. And so, no, I don't know. I just learned to do that, and I guess I'm still doing it. I, I think if you don't want to hear what I have to say, you should not ask me. <laughs> and I know how to be quiet. I, I tell people that I, I think they think I don't know how I do. So don't ask me if you don't want to hear what I have to say about it. <laughs> and I won't force it on you, I promise. The only time I do that is in class. <laughs> I said, well, you have to hear this because it's important. But outside of that, no. I just keep my opinions to myself. Well, you're certainly a great role model for those who may want to bring change about in their workplace. Do well, you have they any, should. Do you have advice for any you know women who are trying to make change in their workplace? And well, what I said, we we had a a meeting just last evening uh, about an issue that's facing us in 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 where in the neighborhood I live in. And what I say to people, and when they had the women's summit here a, a couple of weeks ago, is First, you, you need to be sure you've done your research so that you know that whatever you're trying to advance 
you're you're comfortable even even if there's a stronger argument coming from the other side uh because i tell people uh when when you're writing argument your point can be valid but another point can be valid also and you don't just dismiss it you know you either acknowledge the validity of it or you find a way to show that it lacks certain key points that you have and so what I would say to people, because I do think about it, I think folks think I just talk and I don't think about anything, uh, but I do think about it and I do try to gather the research necessary and, and I try to second guess and say, okay, now is this right? Are you sure this is the way this goes? And, and if you are, as we did last night, you can learn from other people, but, but prepare yourself. Don't just be blurting. I mean, there are lots of things I would like to see happen, but I also realize that the likelihood of that is not so great right now. And I'm not one of these folks who believes in pick your battles. I think anything I'm, I'm ready to oppose is my battle. So I don't go around picking. I, you know, <laughs> you choose. It's important. If something is wrong, it's just wrong. And I don't have time to wait for somebody else to decide it's wrong. You decide yourself. But be prepared. And also be prepared to learn that maybe your point is not as strong as you think it is. And listen to the other side. There is there's something to be heard from the other side. As I, I said to them, I understand right now th there's a lot of economic pressure out there in this country. And, and think about what's going to happen with the businesses who have now discovered they can achieve, quote unquote, a lot by allowing people to stay at home. Well, that's going to mean a, a tremendous workforce um, I guess I don't know whether to say layoff or whatever you would call it, but they're going to be reducing. Well, how do you prepare for a place for those people? I mean, they've served, they've, they've prepared themselves for the career that you see. And, and look at what's happening because I, I look at the size of newspapers and I take three and I look at them and, and I think, are they going to survive? Well, think of all the people who've gotten journalism degrees. Look at the network shows, I mean, we're going to see a change that's much greater than I think we're prepared for. And I would say, you know, if, if you want to speak your mind or do whatever, prepare for it and prepare for these changes and decide where you're going to be when, when those come down, because they're coming. And we, we can't avoid it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you know, what do you do with the folks who are not going to wear their mask, even though we know COVID is still out there? Okay. So you know you don't go up slapping folks because they don't have their mask on. You learn to live in the world the way the world is. And then you decide, but you've also got to know when you take a position, it could be very unpopular. And you could be standing out there by yourself. And I think a lot of people don't prepare for that. Mm -hmm. And you have to. You have to keep it in the back of your mind that I may be only out here. Mm -hmm. And what is that going to mean for me? What is it going to mean for those people who are friends of mine? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then you decide whether you're going on or not. And sometimes it's very lonely and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes the very people you think would not be supporting you are right there. And you only, you'll only know if you go out and do what you believe in. That's the only way you'll know. Mm -hmm. Speaking of those people who or might be supporting you. Um, a couple of things. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, 
Are there any colleagues you'd like to give a shout out to who supported oh, you? Oh, Lord, yeah. It would probably be just about everybody. Uh, the women on the faculty when I when I came here were were extremely supportive. Uh, there's always been, of course, you know we don't have Dr. Herrick anymore, but she was she was a wonderful support system. Dr. Hennenberg in theater, you know, people think a couple of us talk all the time, but in theater, Dr. Hennenberg brought in black directors, so you know it wasn't as if they weren't doing something. Dr. Herrick worked on it in terms of the music that they had. You know, Professor Hannah was doing the same thing. Professor Martin was working on, you know, trying to keep the French department going, you know, because at that point we had one professor for each of the languages. Here we go. Wah, wah, wah. You know, tremendous Hendrix. And so they were there. I always think of Dr. Spatz, Dr. Bruce, Dr. Falls Corbett. Uh, you know, you had Dr. Haggard. These were all people, Art Johnson. I mean, we used to have wonderful conversations with Dr. Johnson because I remember going into Bueller, and I don't know, I was over there for something, and they had this table, this long table as you walked through the door of Bueller. And I, I think I'd been here maybe two or three years, and I looked, and they had student papers out there, just strode out there with the students' names on them. And I remember asking Art, I said, why did you just put the students back? Well, they need to be able to take it. I said, no, it's called privacy rights. Students, I shouldn't be able to go look at other students' grades, and other students shouldn't be able to look at their, their peers. No, it's tough. I said, hey, nothing to do with tough. I said, it's about rights. And so we would have that argument, and he was, but he was a wonderful supporter. And I said, oh, that's just wrong. You don't do that. David Larson always worked for it, Garrett McCain. So it wasn't as if it was women against men. <laughs> Eloise Raymond would be wonderful in faculty meeting because her husband was an associate dean, and she'd stand up, and he'd want to say, now, dear, you should sit down. But he knew not to say that <laughs> uh, because Eloise, when we were, we were trying to put wit together, it was wonderful. So sure, they were all supportive. The English department. Uh, as I said, they had to be good because they had to take me, <laughs> and they did, and they were tremendous for the entire time that I was here. They were. You know, I could think back to Dr. Chapel, Dr. Story, Dr. Crowder, and Dr. West. That was the department at the time. Mm -hmm. And sure, we didn't always agree on, you know, what's going to be off and how we're going to do it, but, but we would come together and say, this is what our majors need, and then we would make the argument Anyway, that's the way it was. But no, there 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 was help all over campus. <laughs> Don Mar would come over to a faucet because you know we had the drink machines up there, and he would get his his coke for the day, and we'd sit and talk about Hendrix politics. That was always something he would work. So you had a campus of support. Doctor Raleigh, I, I remember when we put in wit, uh, we had cooperation from all the departments. They understood how important it was to give the students uh, the broadest base that we could, given the faculty that we had. So they were all participatory. I remember them. I don't think I, I had problems with any of them. Now, they may tell you something different, uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't remember having any. They were all genuinely kind. They were supportive. I don't remember ever picking up the phone, calling any colleague, even somebody that I may not have spoken to since faculty meeting or something. Because, as I said, we lived in our little departments. But if I called and needed a favor, I needed them to explain something. I remember I used to call 
over to philosophy every year. And I say, Lawrence, you got to tell me again about Aristotle here. I said, so I can be sure I'm telling my section the truth about this. And he would just nicely go over it again. I said, thank you very much. So I could be sure I'm right about it. Or some, you know, Dr. Fleming in the music department. We were a cooperative faculty. And, and I think that was the key because all of us worked for the same purpose. You know, trying to be sure that that our students were getting what they needed to be competitive. It's a competitive world out there. And just when we graduate ours, you know, what is it, 3,000 colleges in this country, they were graduating people too. And those people were good also. So we worked together. So yes, I would send shouts out to all of them. They were good to me. I'm sure they, that you were good to them in return. So. I certainly tried. I hope they say so, too. <laughs> Before we go, uh, do you have some stories you'd like to share about your colleagues? We talked about a couple of them who have, who have passed on, who might have a few stories that you, you could share for us. No, actually, I don't. None come to mind. See, if you'd given me this list, I could have thought about it. Well, you did I, talk about Dr. Story I, and his... Uh... Everybody knew about Ken and the <laughs> fact that he did not cook <laughs> and that he had, he had breakfast at Boeing's and he had dinner every day. And he had a lovely home. And I think the story I was telling you when we were doing lunch is that Ken had gotten a pizza and he went to warm it up. And I don't know why he thought you'd put the darn thing on top of the stove. And so, but he turned on the oven. I think he forgot, maybe. And he turned on the oven and he kept smelling uh, something burning. And once he discovered it, it was the paperwork that came with the stove because he'd never turned the oven on. And it was on the <laughs> on fire. And he had to go put, put it out. It was just hilarious. You know, we just, I thought, we, we all just thought, Ken, please. You're going to kill yourself until you come into... But he didn't cook. And so he didn't know that, that he should have taken the paper out of his oven. It was just hilarious. <laughs> but no, that's the only one that comes to mind immediately. After all, I'm genuinely a senior now. And so anything I can't remember, I just think, I'm an old person now. I can't remember that. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Do you have anything you'd like to share about Dr. Crowder? Oh, heavens, yes. See, when they hired me, Bland was abroad. So in the interview, I'd never interviewed with him. And I remember we were having something, I don't know, when school started that September, we had to go <laughs> into Staples. And there he was on the, on the stand, and he, uh, on the steps, because they didn't have the ramp at that time. And he was talking, and I was listening. And I thought, where did this man come from with this accent? I didn't understand a word Bland said. And I was just leaning and listening, and I thought, oh, no. I thought this reminded me of a professor I had, Dr. Duncan who was from South Carolina, North Carolina. I didn't understand him either. And I had to go to his office once and tell him, I said, could you slow down a little bit? I don't know what you're saying. Because even though I went to school in Georgia, people didn't sound like that. I'm sorry, they just didn't. And I listened to Bland. I didn't understand him. He was very, you know, very kind and welcoming. And I just smiled. I thought, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? So it took me a while to understand Dr. Crowder because he cultivated that accent. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> as much as he traveled and why, you know, you'd lose some of it. He lost none of it. He did not. No, he didn't. No. And I remember, see, things do come to me. And I won't call the student's name, but she'll remember this if she ever hears this. <laughs> Bland would write notes on, on his papers when he would give them back to students. And, and at that point, all of us got our mail in Hewlin, faculty and students. So I was over there one day getting my mail. And this student was an English major. She took her paper out. And she was reading what, what Bland had written. And she said, well, can you help me understand what my grade is? And I said, I don't know. So I looked. She said, he has A, B, C. She said, which one of them is my grade? And I started laughing. I said, those are his initials, Ashley Bland Crowder. <laughs> and he would always mark in pencil, never in ink. And I just thought, that is hilarious. And I told him, I said, Bland, the students don't know what their grades are because you, you wrote ABC, <laughs> you know, beneath his little note, his comment. And so that was really funny to me. <laughs> and of course, he didn't change. <laughs> he, ne he never stopped. He always wrote, wrote his, his, his wrote ABC. <laughs> and when uh, Dean Churchill uh, told us, we'd had this big discussion in faculty about posting office hours. And if you can remember, some people did and some people didn't. And so Dean Churchill was to enforce that. And I remember we, we, we had an English department meeting. Usually we just meet there in the hallway. But we had a real meeting where we sat down at a table and were talking to each other. And we were trying to convince Dr. Crowder that he had to put office hours up in those little blocks. Bland went back to his office and took out a sheet of notebook paper and wrote, I will be here at 8 o'clock. I will leave here at 3.30. Um, Stevie, I said, Blaine, that's not what they meant. <laughs> I mean, it was just funny. And he never, he never put anything in that little card slot where we were supposed to put our office out. He just didn't. He said, well, they know when I'm here. Blaine, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. But he, and he was always there for students. He loved interacting with them. But I uh -uh. Blandest, he, he went his own way about these things. And it was all, and you could just, you know, save your argument because he, he was not going to do it. He just thought it made no sense. And some of the things that, that, that he chose that didn't make sense didn't make any sense that, that we were being asked to do. And he would always take a position on it, always. And that was important. He certainly was a man of, of his own caliber and, and uh, his beliefs. But it was he, some of the things he did were just hilarious, <laughs> and they needed to change. <laughs> and he would, and he and Ken would, would argue about that because they, he, uh, Story and West traded off, uh, he said, what was it? I think it was something about the British novel and, and something else. And they were all, they were all Victorians. And so they were expert in it. And and I thought, well, you y'all just work that out. That is that is not my area. I, I cannot deal with these Victorian folk. And like I told him, I thought Tennyson lived too long. He would he would stop writing these darn poems like <laughs> In Memoriam and go on and on and on and Loxley Hall revisited. How many times do you need to go back? You know, that's so <laughs> I thought it's too difficult for me to be a Victorian. That didn't made no sense. <laughs> 
But those are my memories. Oh, thank you so much for sharing with us. Well, you're very thank welcome. You. <laughs> we always love to see you here on campus. And, and well, I shall try to come, you know, if we can ever calm the pandemic. You know, we old people shouldn't be getting out in this. So I'll try as often as I can. But thank you very much. And I don't know where this is going, but I hope it's not going too far. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think everyone I, will really enjoy it. I'm not a public appearance person. <laughs> but thank you very much. You've been very kind. As I said, if I'd had the questions first, I could have prepared better answers. Well, you know, I could say the same in, in the exams you gave me in the that's 1990s. True. So <laughs> that's different. See, we're not, I'm not working for anything. <laughs> spontaneity is good. It's, yeah, it's well, great to be able to, to hear. My spontaneity needs some help. <laughs> oh, we like your spontaneity. Yes, we well, like you're it You're very fine. kind. And thank you very much. I Thank think it you. will be good to hear what other people have to say. All right. Well, we appreciate it so much. I'll be listening for that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. If these bricks could talk, receive support from the fountain. How long since you've taken a birthday swim in the fountain? Well, that's too long. Thanks for listening. Our audio engineer is Megan Stevenson, Hendrix Class of 2007. Our theme music was created by Kristen Puchinski, Hendrix Class of 1997, performing as Ellen Cherry. Mm-hmm.